This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's a new medical movement that's making waves, psychedelics, with studies claiming, controversially, that hallucinogenic drugs might have all sorts of surprising mental health benefits. It's like 10 years of therapy, or it's worth 10 years of therapy in one week. We hear the story of one journalist who tried magic mushrooms to deal with her grief. But did this treatment work for her? As far as I was concerned, this is just a complete joke. I've been given rubbish drugs by some lunatic who thinks things are going to get better if I pretend to be a badger. This is Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the trip of a lifetime. Oh, life in 2013 was absolutely brilliant. It's funny, there's not often times in your life when you're conscious in real time that everything has kind of come good. Usually that's something you only see in retrospect, but I remember being really conscious that life was in an astonishingly happy place. Decca Aitkenhead is chief interviewer at the Sunday Times, but today it's me doing the interviewing. She's here to tell me about a magic mushroom retreat, but first she takes me back to a day that changed her life forever. My eldest was three and our youngest was two, um, and I'd been with their father for about seven or eight years, and we had just moved out of London to this lovely sort of tumble-down, falling-down house in the countryside with bluebells and forest, and just thought, God, this is amazing. And then it all went horribly wrong. Halfway through doing renovations on our lovely new tumble-down house with the bluebells, and we went on holiday to Jamaica, to this little village called Treasure Beach, where I've been going for 20, it had been 20 years then, um, and it was kind of home from home for us. And on the, nearly the last day of our holiday, our son, our eldest, who was then four, was just paddling at the water's edge. And he took a step out and he got sucked by a riptide, which is a kind of invisible thing. You can't really see it if you're, it's not like a rough sea, but it's like a kind of invisible conveyor belt that sucks you out to sea. And so within moments, he'd lost his footing and he was sucked out of his depth. And his dad was on the beach with him and immediately raced into the water to, to rescue him. And I saw this from our cottage and came sprinting down to the beach. But even by the time I'd got to the sand, Jake's dad already had him and they seemed fine. But then I realised they were out of their depth and they couldn't get back to the shore because Jake's dad, Tony, wasn't a great swimmer. Uh, and it was an incredibly powerful riptide. 
So I swam to them and took Jake from Tony and had him in her arms and I knew how to do uh, life-saving. I'd been taught as a child and it's funny how these things just come back to you. So I flipped Jake on his back and swam for sure and it didn't seem like a big drama, it seemed like a bit of a moment, but nothing more than that, you know, something that you might kind of tell people about over dinner that night. Nothing more dramatic than that, really. But we seemed to be swimming for an amazingly long time without getting back to shore and I turned and realised we were still a long way offshore and that's when I realised quite how strong the riptide was. But eventually we did get back to shore and I plonked him down on the sand and, and we turned expecting to see his dad following us but his dad was way out at sea and was just being pulled further and was doing the thing you should never do with a riptide which is try and fight it. And he was panicking and he was taking on water. And there were other friends on the beach. And so my friends got to Tony and we managed to throw a life ring to them and we kind of pulled them ashore. And even then we thought it was okay because he hadn't gone under. But he'd actually taken on too much water while into his lungs while he was kind of fighting the riptide. And he'd drowned without being submerged. He'd actually drowned while we were pulling him ashore. So I didn't realise that Jake's dad was dead on the beach. I thought he was just unconscious or recovering and then there was a huge hullabaloo and more people and people doing CPR and but it was too late he died in the water so it was kind of there aren't really any words to describe what that what that's like really you know half an hour earlier we were a really happy family enjoying a beach holiday and then I've got two children in my hand and they're looking at their dad and he's dead lying on the sand it was uh in an instant, you know, your whole life forevermore has just changed, just like that. And so we flew home with their dad in a coffin, just to absolute the year of just indescribable sort of trauma and hell, trying to make sense of what had happened and to look after the boys. At the end of this awful year, near the anniversary of Tony's funeral, Decker told her boys... Nothing's ever going to be this hard ever again. But she was wrong. Five days later... She was diagnosed with cancer and needed a double mastectomy. Decker says to the outside world it must have looked like they were doing okay. But really, she was struggling to cope. Superficially, we did quite a good job. But I knew how difficult things had been and I knew how far from okay we really were. And to be honest, me probably more than anybody. Um, I think the kids did better than me at kind of recovering. Um... And I just did better at pretending to have. <laughs> so there was a lot of feeling like I was kind of impersonating myself and keeping up a good show and... But inside, just thinking, oh, God, you know, this is just a living hell. I remember you, you wrote about what had happened and you know, just reading it as a casual stranger. It was written through such searing grief. Yeah. You couldn't help but be affected by it. I can't imagine how that must have felt. No, it's, um, the strange thing about grief is the re- <laughs> of course, in some ways it gets better. You know, five years on, you're better than you are on the day that you're standing on the, that beach. Of course. But it never gets okay. <laughs> it's only kind of degrees of being less awful. Um, and the kind of relentlessness of it, it never, ever, ever gives you any real respite. Every day is kind of framed by what's happened. And yet, every day you still have to find the PE kit and get the kids to school and do that interview and do that job and pay that bill. So there's this strange sense that, you know, life moves on and you don't really move on at all. You know, I remember thinking it would have been okay to have cancer if Tony was alive. (laughs) 
Um, obviously, it wouldn't be okay, but it felt like it would have been okay. Um, and I sort of thought we could we could have recovered if I hadn't got cancer, but it was the double whammy that really left me feeling like I'm kind of stuck in a place that's fundamentally unrecoverable from. That's what it felt like, really. Did you did you try to address that? Did you sort of <laughs> yeah. did you try to fix things? Um, there was an ill-fated and short short-lived experiment with yoga. How did that go? <laughs> really badly. <laughs> didn't provide the answer? I think it was probably better than not doing any, but it certainly didn't facilitate any profound shift. It felt like tinkering at the edges and it felt slightly like kind of taking a penknife to a nuclear war, to be honest. You know, it didn't really feel equal to the challenge at hand. Um, but then partly because, you know, life is hectic and busy and how much of your life can you really commit to it? After a period of experimenting with self-care... I think it involves moisturiser. <laughs> Regular bedtimes and lots of moisturiser. A stint doing yoga. No, it backfired horribly. And a foray into veganism. Absolutely useless for my mind and soul. No, useless. Um, no, completely useless. Decker hears about an American couple who work at the very beach where Tony died, offering a unique type of therapy the use of magic mushrooms. At their retreat in Jamaica, psilocybin is administered as a medicine to work through trauma. And now, universities like Imperial College and John Hopkins have set up psychedelic research centres to explore the science behind it. I just thought the whole thing sounded so unlikely and hilarious. But I thought, right, OK, but obviously my journalistic ears pricked up, of course. How could they not? So the next time I was in Treasure Beach, I met with them, Eric and Courtney, and... You know, Eric kind of shows up in beach shorts and flip-flops and he's from Kentucky and he has this real y'all kind of drawl. Um, and his wife, Courtney, used to be a figure skater and she's this kind of lithe figure, lithe figured kind of beauty. And they, we met for a coffee and they made what these claims about the transformative powers of psilocybin that just sounded ludicrous. But they were a very winning kind of couple. I really liked them. But I couldn't quite square the kind of profound psychological transformations they were describing with this kind of laid-back couple in flip-flops. It just didn't... Oh, none of it quite Jamaica, added up. Exactly. A, exactly. A magic mushroom resort. And the other thing I hadn't bargained for was them saying, oh, and if you're going to write about it, you'd obviously need to participate in a retreat. So, oh, I hadn't quite factored that in. I wasn't entirely sure how it would work journalistically. So... Because I thought, well, what if nothing much really happens for me? To be completely honest, you know, when I showed up in Jamaica, I thought I was going, as a journalist, to write about this interesting retreat and this interesting story. Was it was it odd? I mean, it is a Class A drug here. You you probably couldn't have done, certainly not a resort, unless you were sort of signed up to one of these studies that's going yes. on. Um, was it odd going back to Jamaica, where sort of the roots of your grief are sort of... Um, Coming full circle. Almost. No, partly because we've been back lots since Tony died there. Um, and it's still a huge part of our lives and, our, and my family and my, for my boys. It's, they feel more at home there than they do in London. So it didn't feel that. There certainly felt like a slightly... Um, I mean, I'm really not a mystical person at all. So even using the word synchronicity makes me slightly blush, but... There was an element of synchronicity. I thought, God, there is there is a curious sense of circles turning that here I am back in Jamaica um, to try this this treatment. 
But I mean, I, I can't overstate how little I expected it to do anything for me. I really, it just seemed so implausible, the idea that this was going to make a significant difference to how I felt about myself or the world. It just, yeah, I, I, that's not what I, I didn't arrive anticipating that. I arrived thinking, oh, I hope this is going to make a good, interesting feature. So tell me about arriving. What is this resort, Magic Mushroom Resort, like? I mean, what is one of those? I mean, it's a sort of string of very beautiful, opulent upmarket villas and they're overlooking the sea and everything is a kind of Instagram perfect vision of sort of turquoise Caribbean water and lovely mahogany furniture and bougainvillea growing everywhere and... Uh, and lots of lovely staff. And all of the other guests were very... Um, I think most of them were in their 60s, few in their 50s. Apart from one guy, I was the youngest person there. And what sort of person goes to a magic mushroom resort? Well... <laughs> Who were they? I mean, it turns out rather sort of successful people, it turns out. They were all very high achieving. There was a venture capitalist. There was an airline pilot. There were two psychiatrists. There was an advertising executive. Um, a retired pathologist a retired biologist. There was this slightly kind of... I remember thinking at one point on the first evening while we were having dinner, thinking, <laughs> I wonder if this is what orgies were like in the 70s, where you get this completely unlikely group of total strangers who get together who are all very polite, nonetheless knowing that we're all about to do something quite out of the ordinary and a little bit transgressive. But also very serious. I mean, they sound more like the sort of the scientific community turning up to the lecture. I mean, they look like... They do, I tell you what they look like. They look like the kind of people that you might walk past on a sun, rainy Sunday afternoon in a National Trust property, you know, who would sort of wear sensible shoes and they would bring a healthy picnic and an umbrella to a National Trust. It was that kind of atmosphere. And then the next morning, we all gathered after breakfast in this gazebo overlooking the beach. And we just talked about why we're there. And people talked with breathtaking candour uh, and insight. And a particularly consistent theme was the sense that on paper, my life's been super successful. You know, here I am, I ran this company or I've got this business or I have this career and I have this family. And But a really consistent theme would be people would say, you know, I've had a lot of success, but it hasn't brought me joy. After working out what each of them had to process, they moved on to administering the drug. The key is just to let go and to allow the psilocybin to do what it needs to do. And they talked a lot about how the psilocybin won't give you what you want, it will give you what you need, and it will kind of almost perform a sort of psychological PET scan to identify what it is in you that you need, and it will go to work on that. So it's no good going in with your list because the psilocybin... I mean, it sounded also airy-fairy and ludicrous. I was slightly sniggering. I've got to be honest, at that point, I'm thinking, yeah, right. Um, but on the other hand, I can't wait to take the drugs. I'm thinking, this is going to be amazing. What fun this will be. So what happened? Did, did the psilocybin find the bits of you that needed <laughs> Um We took um, our prescribed dose... And they were very keen. One of the facilitators in particular was saying, you know, you need to do this in absolute introspective isolation, so you must wear an eye mask. Uh, you can listen to music, but absolutely not music that has lyrics. You should listen to a John Hopkins curated psilocybin playlist on Spotify. 
Decker follows the very clinical advice of Eric and the facilitators. She puts on the eye mask and lies down by herself. But she makes one big mistake. As she's lying on the sun lounger, waiting for the mushrooms to hit, she dozes off. By the time she wakes up, the mushrooms have taken full effect and she's feeling... Horrible. <laughs> it was just... I'd been so looking forward to this, thinking this is going to be great. And I woke up and looked around and thought, oh, no. Oh, God, this is horrible. It was just... We were in this beautiful, lush, tropical garden and it looked like Miss Havisham's attic. Everything was kind of smothered in this kind of cobwebby grey lace that made everything look deathly and creepy and cold. And I could see one of the other guests lying on the lawn and he just looked like a dead corpse lying on the grass. And I kept thinking, right, okay, what can I do to sort of turn this around? And apparently nothing was the answer. It just became progressively worse. I had this intense nausea, this feeling of sickness, this dragging, dragging sickness. And I'm just thinking, oh, God, this is awful. And it's going to go on and on and on. And how can I make this stop? How, how long does it last? Well, it felt like about 500 years. <laughs> That's one of the strange oh, things. Oh, yes. So, and that was, to be honest, my question, because eventually Eric comes in and he appears at my bedside. I'm like, Eric, I hate you. This is the worst thing I've ever done. This is stupid. What possessed me to take drugs by myself in the dark without my friends around? Of course, this is just rubbish. And he's saying, no, 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 I've seen this a million times. This is the trauma. I'm saying, oh, Eric, get to hell. This is not the trauma. Don't be stupid. This is just, you maybe take drugs by myself in the dark. It's a rubbish idea. I hate it. When will it end? And he's kind of looking at me saying, mm, I think you've got about an hour to go. Did he have any coping strategies? Is there anything you can do to somehow feel better in a situation like that? Huh. Funny you should ask. His proposal was that I get on all fours and sort of oh. rootle around like a badger. I'm like, you want me to pretend to be a badger? You out of your mind? Eric, you are a prize idiot. I don't believe a word you say. This whole thing is a complete joke. As soon as this wears off, I'm leaving. As far as I was concerned, this is just a complete joke. I've been given rubbish drugs by some lunatic who thinks things are going to get better if I pretend to be a badger. How, how did that end? How did that all well, Eventually, thank God, I fell asleep. And I woke up at about two o'clock in the morning with a banging hangover, thinking, oh my God, that's the final insult. I feel like I've got the worst hangover in the world from taking drugs that weren't fun at all. My God, this is terrible. <laughs> Isn't sounding very therapeutic so far. It was the opposite of therapeutic as far as I was concerned. And he kept trying to tell me, Eric, that, you know, that this was a kind of therapeutic process I was undergoing. And I was not buying it at all. I was like, no, it's just that your drugs are horrible. What stopped you from walking away? Well, so the following morning, everyone then reassembles in the gazebo. And that was thoroughly galling because I was fully anticipating that everyone would be in my shoes, my boat. Wanting their money back. Wanting their money back. So this is a complete joke. And slightly to my dismay, it turned out that everyone else had, had really psychologically interesting, positive experiences. I remember sitting there thinking, hmm. Oh, that's annoying. <laughs> but everyone seemed to have had quite a productive time. And my friend who I brought along, it turned out, it had an absolute ball. She'd ignored the advice about the psilocybin playlist, the John Hopkins. She'd just played lovely reggae. 
and been dancing on the beach all afternoon with some of the facilitators. At which point I thought, well, that confirms everything I suspected. The problem here is that I was all by myself in the dark. If I'm just allowed to do this with my friend and music I like... That's interesting. Does it make it less clinical, though? Well... That's the approved position is yes, that to maximise your sort of clinical experience, you need to be as isolated and introspective as possible. Um, But Eric eventually said, listen, will you do it again tomorrow if I let you do it with your friend and you have music and we make it more of a party? And I said, OK. And he said, I'll do it too. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. Decca had an awful first trip. She'd seen death and decay all around her, but with a bit of convincing, she decided she'd give it another go. Only this time, she'd do things differently. She'd have music and she wouldn't be alone. Her friend and Eric the facilitator would be tripping with her. But the next day, we did it. And I remember lying on the grass in the kind of brace position, waiting for everything to go horrible again. And after about an hour, I look up, and Eric's hugging a tree at this point. I said, Eric, is it coming, the horrible stuff? And my friend just kind of jumps up off the grass and goes, I bloody hope not, because I'm having the time of my life. And at that point, I just suddenly sort of stopped and looked around and thought, oh, oh, yes, oh, this is fun. How were you feeling? What were you experiencing? I just started to laugh in a way that I've not laughed, certainly since since the day I was widowed. Um, just proper kind of crying with laughter, sort of rolling around on the ground laughing. It's just... And if you haven't really laughed authentically for years and years and years, that is quite a profound experience. But I do remember at one point rolling around on the grass and turning to Eric and saying, Eric, OK, first play, I'm having the time of my life. You're quite right, this is lots of fun. But you can't honestly suggest that this is going to make a whit of difference to my inner psyche. And I do remember at the end, as uh, you know, we watched the sunset and there was a hummingbird and it's beautiful. And so I think, oh, my God, we get to do this again to the day after tomorrow, because over the course of the retreat, you do three doses. So this was number two. You, you described the sun setting and a hummingbird. I mean, um, did things look different yeah. in the way that you were sort of saying it looked like Miss Havisham's? Quite. On, de- on the first dose, everything had looked sort of sinister and creepy and deathly. And this time round, everything was infused with this breathtaking kind of colour and clarity and your sense of connection. You're almost physically touching the beauty you can see. It's just just the sense of being suffused with joy. It was quite incredible. But still, I was firmly of the view that it was in the category of fun rather than any kind of clinical this experience. This serious science. Absolutely no science going on. The other people at the retreat had a range of experiences – from one retired pathologist who saw vaginas in the treetops. He wasn't sure if the experience meant he was very sort of grounded or superficial, but he thoroughly enjoyed himself. 
<laughs> to the woman who was taken back to her childhood during the war when Russian soldiers rolled in and she thought she was having dinner with her deceased family. She's sobbing and weeping and she's speaking half in Finnish, half in English. I don't think she was even kind of conscious of which language she was speaking. Decker's experience was very different. I felt slightly sort of self-conscious that mine had just been a bit frivolous, really. And other people had obviously had really profound experiences. Sure, she'd had a great time. But Decker was still convinced that nothing profound had shifted. When we left, they said it's very important to kind of pay attention to what your mind is processing in the days and weeks to come. And you must keep a diary, keep a journal, write down things. And I remember getting on the plane thinking, yeah, yeah right. You know, we're going to land, I'm going to get home, life will go back to being chaos. I'm never going to have time to do that. There aren't going to be epiphanies bubbling up, you know, don't be ridiculous. Um, maybe for some of the others, but that's not going to be me. It sort of felt like the homework bit you weren't going to do. Exactly. And I remember literally two nights later... I'm in bed and it's 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning and I've got a notepad in here and I'm writing and I go, I cannot really? believe this is happening. I cannot actually believe. Here I am writing down these sort of profound insights. What sort of things were coming to you? What were you aware of? I started off realising um, that one of the curious things about being widowed, and particularly when you're widowed very young and you've got small kids and you're kind of in crisis, is you're incredibly vulnerable and dependent upon other people's goodwill. You know, you're just sort of skinless and you cannot afford to alienate other people's goodwill because that's the only thing really that is keeping you afloat. And so the terrible thing that happens is that you become sort of unrecognisably demure and kind of polite and rather inhibited. You lose the confidence to say anything that might put somebody out. What you become is actually deeply inauthentic. You become this rather bland, polite, very pleasing person. Um, and the irony is that you're doing that in order not to alienate anyone's goodwill. But actually... What you've become is profoundly inauthentic. And everyone can sense that. Of course they can. People can smell inauthenticity. And I just suddenly realised I've t been so careful not to alienate anyone and have actually as a consequence alienated everyone into this kind of bland, polite territory. And rediscovering the possibility that you could just be yourself and be candid and be honest. Um, and even if that does mean sometimes saying things that people don't want to hear... Actually, the dividend of that, and it became apparent within 24 hours really? of this. Absolutely. I'm, as I'm saying this, and I'm seeing the expression on your face, I realise how implausible all of this sounds. Things don't, profound psychological shifts and behavioural shifts don't take place within 24 hours in real life, do they? You know, certainly not enduring ones. No, that is amazing. And also, were you just becoming aware of how you'd been behaving or were you instantly able to change it? Both. Wow. That was the revelation, exactly. And I think with talking therapies, in my experience, it's been quite a good useful diagnostic process for understanding things that are going on. Not very good at being an agent for changing them. Whereas psilocybin it, it seems to be able to not just alert you to what's going on, but to enable you to change it. The thing that I'm profoundly grateful for is the fact that I didn't show up at that retreat either expecting it to do anything for me. God, wouldn't it be a bonus? But I never really... I was always arrived as a sceptic. 
Um, and I always arrived as a journalist. So I, I don't have to question whether I'm telling myself a story to justify the money I spent or the time I invested or the hope I invested. I absolutely know that what's happened has really happened. And how has it changed your life? One of the things about trying to just kind of keep going with your life is, um, you know, when you've been widowed and you're a single mum and you're just trying to keep the show on the road and all you're really trying to do is get by, is that you don't make good changes in your life. Um, partly because you don't have the spare capacity, but also you don't have the kind of... You don't really have enough belief in the future to really push the boat out and make changes. So you end up sustaining arrangements that are, that you really shouldn't have done, you know, long past their shelf life. So, you know, we up until this point, we still own our house in the countryside and we're still renting a house that we hate in London just because the enormity of trying to do anything about that just felt unconscionable. And my son was at a school that he hated and I didn't really know how to make those changes. I've been completely single since I was widowed. I haven't dated, I haven't done anything like that. Um, you know, you're just trying to keep the show on the road. And we got back, I think, from the retreat on something like December the 10th. And my son is now in a brand new school that he absolutely loves. Um, and he's kind of like a different child. And we've found a house to buy in London, sold the house in Kent. You know, life is kind of moving on. I've started seeing someone for the first time um, wow. since I was widowed. And all of this has happened in the space of, I suppose, two and a half months. Is That's that right? That's incredible. Isn't it just? Have you kept in touch with the other people who were there? How have they been affected? How, you know, have they gone back and found equally profound, proper shifts in their lives? One man went home and ended his marriage uh, and says his life is so much better because of it. Everyone that I've spoken to, without exception, says that their life has been improved, that they have a kind of sense of clarity. A big theme has been about forgiveness, the sense they've been able to let go of resentment towards a sense that they've been wronged by people. There's been an enormous amount of going back and apologising or forgiving or thanking people that are close to them. And that's really shifted things in their relationships. Magic mushrooms are illegal in this country. It's still very controversial. But Decker is an absolute convert. I mean, the terrible truth is I have become an absolute psilocybin evangelist bore. <laughs> I find it extraordinary that we have a substance that can help people in this way and that it's still technically, as far as the law is concerned, it's equivalent to heroin or crack. And I can't believe that that won't change. I just feel like I've been reborn or reset or refreshed. or And it has this ability of, it's almost, for me, it felt like being restored to factory settings on a phone. It just cleanses away sort of sediments of trauma or, or experience that are kind of clogging or distorting, um, distorting who you are. Yeah, and who wouldn't want that kind of a spring clean, right? In December, psilocybin cleared a significant hurdle for use in treating depression after a clinical trial found that it can be safely administered. 
but doctors still warn that in some people it can trigger psychosis and the evidence of its effectiveness isn't definitive yet. More trials had been planned in the UK, but they've been interrupted by the pandemic. And the Home Office says psilocybin status as a Class A drug doesn't prevent it being used for research or clinical trials under a Home Office licence. The NHS strongly advises against self-medicating with any drug for depression and says your GP should be your first port of call. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Decca Aitkenhead, Chief Interviewer at The Sunday Times. You can keep up with all of Decca's work with a digital subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The producers were Asia Fuchs and Ben Mitchell. The executive producers this week are James Shield and Asia Fuchs. Sound design was by Falcon Kizzeltook. Music by Breakmaster Cylinder and Ketzer. Have a good weekend. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>